everybody can say hi to Bruce. Hey, Bruce. We talked on the phone, I don't know, about a month ago about something. Yeah, it was funny. Hey, this is Steve Hindelong from the choir. I'm here with my friends. Dan Michaels. Hey, Derry. And you are listening to the True, True Tunes, Tunes Podcast. Podcast. Come on in. I'm not sure what Derry Dardy and Steve Hindelong were thinking when they decided to name their spiritually inflected alternative new wave rock band Youth Choir, later simply The Choir, back in the early 80s. It was a good band name to be sure, good enough in fact to have been used by a regionally famous Ohio garage rock band back in the 60s. It was ironic in a way to take something obviously churchy and make something rock and roll out of it. The altar boys did it, the church, ministry, Genesis, the Jesus and Mary chain, even Black Sabbath and Judas Priest leaned into religious imagery for their names. So, youth choir or the choir made sense. Every band needs a name and the choir picked a good one before all the good ones were gone. Oh, it's so wonderful to be in love with you. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and this is the True Tunes Podcast. I started dreaming up this whole True Tunes thing when I attended the first Cornerstone Festival back in 1984. I was almost 14 years old, and I wanted to find a way to keep what I called the Cornerstone buzz going all year. Cornerstone brought thousands of people together from all over the world to hear the most eclectic collection of gospel-tinged music most of us could imagine, along with teaching, films, poetry, and conversations. It was truly unlike anything I had ever experienced before or since. For a few days, we all came together. The bands and the fans, the teachers and the students, the misfits and the, well, I guess most of us were all misfits in one way or another, but at Cornerstone, we all felt at home. I wanted True Tunes to help maintain that connection through the other 360 or so days of the year and to widen the circle. Choir was the first band to play on the first day of the first Cornerstone Festival. They also played the closing set on the last day of the final festival back in 2012. Cornerstone ended, but the choir rolls on. Most faithful fans are numbering their newest album, Deep Cuts, among their best. Come on down, Come on. 
I remember once trying to explain the choir to a friend in the music business. I was in Los Angeles at a fancy hotel where industry folks gathered once a year to vet the various albums and singles that had been entered for consideration for the Grammy Awards. And that year, one of the people in the room was absolutely flummoxed by the music and lyrics of this swirling, ambient band that was both dreamy and loud. One of the jobs of the committee was to determine if the entries were, in fact, gospel-oriented. The more traditional gospel folks didn't quite know what to make of alternative music in general, but the choir, whose lyrics were particularly poetic, figurative, and at times almost psychedelic, just didn't sound like gospel to some of those good folks. When we broke for lunch, the friend sitting next to me in the meeting asked me for more perspective on the band. When I told him that they weren't kids, actually, and that they had been making music since the early 80s with little hope of commercial success, he was amazed. I explained that while, in my opinion, they deserved mainstream attention and fans, there was no denying the gospel nature of the lyrics if they were understood poetically. They did earn a Grammy nomination, by the way, for their 2000 album, Flap Your Wings. I suppose you found some peculiar creatures to get to know. You always were a curious kind of soul. Sad you had to go so Of course, any longtime members of the True Tunes corner of the world know all about the choir. You're ready for me to shut up and roll the tape already. Allow me, however, to imagine for a few more moments that somewhere on the other end of the wires and Wi-Fi waves that deliver this show, there may be some who have yet to hear the sweet sound of Derry Doherty's voice, the effervescent and melodic pounding of lyricist drummer Steve Hindelong, the emotive cascade of sound that flows from Dan Michael's saxophone and lyricon, and, until recently, the impossibly muscular bass of the late Tim Chandler. Yes, we have Darty, Hindelong, and Michaels with us today. I actually joined them in their own private studio to talk through deep cuts and to explore their origin story a bit. We've got lots of history with this band, but I'm sure hoping we can turn some newcomers on to this unlikely musical story of friendship and family. Because this conversation is so extensive and essentially takes us on a tour of both the new album and the roots of the group, Bruce is rolling out the old jukebox and firing her up to use throughout the show. So please forgive the stack of records lying about. We'll get to all of that, the ups and downs of one of our favorite bands, and a guided tour through their new album after we take care of a little housekeeping. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. 
As you have heard me explain, I served as the musical supervisor and as a special historical consultant on the film Electric Jesus. I was honored to approach the choir about the use of a song from their 1986 album, Diamonds in Rain. We asked if they would be interested in recording a brand new master for us. So, when you see the movie, you'll hear a brand new version of this 35-year-old tune, sounding very much in the spirit of the original, but all beefed up for today. I'm here with... Steve Hindelong, Derry Dartery. I'm here with Steve Hindelong, Derry Darty, and Dan Michaels of the choir, who went in and re recorded Render Love specifically for the Electric Jesus soundtrack. So we're talking about needle drops, and this one is actually a needle drop. It's a classic song, but a new recording of a classic song. Um, Steve, uh, first of all, you got a chance to see the movie. Like, you were around in 1986 watching, you know, bands. What what did you think of the movie in general? What what did you what were your impressions? It just gave me a weird feeling of I don't know. I had mixed feelings. Sometimes it was too close for comfort. Honestly, <laughs> you know, it was fun. That I'm glad our song was real early in the movie because I would have waited the whole time, not watched the movie, just waiting for our song. You know, but yeah. it was really early. I was a little bit. Uh, uh, bothered that there was so many 77 songs and they were louder in the mix what than ours, <laughs> you know. But other than that, it was interesting. I, I liked how real the, the movie was. It was trying to be quite honest. Um, but yeah, it was... Because um, we were never part of the metal thing. Right. So that was sort of a metal thing. And it was, um, it was different than our experience. The needle drop stuff in the background is kind of serving almost like a a reminder or a, a subtle kind of compass that says there was actually some cool, like th this other stuff going on. Like, you know what I, I totally was... thought, John? Cause I know you were like involved in your musical director or whatever, right? <laughs> I was like, like, yeah, music supervisor. Yeah. Soup. So I thought to myself, cause the, 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 the band was more into metal. Yeah. He had all this like alternative stuff. And I thought, yeah, John Thompson placed all those songs. Those are his songs. <laughs> I, I totally thought uh, to true. be fair, Chris, the, the guy who wrote the movie and directed the movie. Um, the truth was most of us who were kids back then, we kind of liked everything. Right. There wasn't true. those hard lines. I, tended to be more the alternative kid but i still liked metal if it was really out there and i went at cornerstone i'd kind of watch all the bands but there's the scene when the kid the main kid rattles off you know all the bands that he's into right and that's designed to kind of show that if you were hardcore into the scene you were so desperate for music that was cool that you just kind of listened to anything that was you know, halfway cool. We used to mm -hmm. laugh about that. We people come up to us and go, "You're my favorite band, my favorite band, you guys and Petra." <laughs> <laughs> like, how can you? Really? Mm -hmm. Or you know, it could be you guys in Bloodgood, or you guys. Well, in like your Blood, friend, you know. your friend. Yeah, my friend, my friend with. Justin. Like he he picks me up in his his uh, yellow and black uh, Camaro. Everything is striper, striper, striper. He even took me to the striper show. Which was pretty good. I give them their due. You know, they made their mark. But whatever, you can't be farther extreme. He he loves our band, the choir, and he loves Stripe. Yeah. I, you got me. He took me to see that band, Dream Theater. I'm like, no, there's no. Why is there no girls in the crowd? Because you can't dance to this music. It's got no soul. What are you talking about? We don't agree on anything musically, except he loves our band. Yeah. So, and you do too. <laughs> Well, I mean, when you go back and you think about the mid-80s, when you go back and you and you are thinking about the choir in 1986 when Render Love came out, and that song in particular, 
Um, what were you trying to get across in that song? Well, it was political season like it always is, you know, and it <laughs> definitely had a little, well, it would have been Reagan time, right? So it was definitely, it had a little political bent to it. And, and I, I remember being, thinking it was kind of like John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance. Was it fun to go back and record it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was interesting just trying to play that fast. For me, anyway. It wasn't for, for him, but it was for me. It was like, oh, no. Yeah, we tried to recreate it exactly as it was. I mean, I played the drums exactly the same drum fills. Just sounded a little better. I think we... You know, mm-hmm. Stephen Lywicki did a great job recording it. Chris Donahue was honored Tim's bass part and played it note for note. Um, the only different, big difference is we took it down a whole step. Yeah. It was too high for Derry. It's too high. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It was. I couldn't and, sing that high. And I remember it, you, you went and found, like, the original sounds because they were kind of hard to find because those keyboards are pretty obsolete now, right? Right. Yeah. yeah I, I had to kind of go online and do, a do a, like, a weeks-long search to kind of get as close to those sounds as I possibly could. So I got some uh, online samplers that sounded like, uh, gosh, the old Yamaha DX7. And And that Juno 60. Yeah, the Roland Juno 60. Mm -hmm. So came as close as I possibly could. Here, for the first time on our podcast, is the newly recorded version of Render Love. Your fear 
here I am with the choir. Thank you guys for being on the True Tunes podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I got here a, a copy of the old uh, True Tunes magazine. You guys were cover boys, all three of you, actually. Oh, that's right. On that's the right. cover I of True Tunes. I have a couple Tunes. of those in my crawl space. And your crawl is a good insulation, mm-hmm. keeping the yeah, you know, keeping the heat in the, box. in the house. The keeper of the archives. The this, funny thing is, when we took that photo shoot, we probably thought, "Look how old we look." And now I look at it and like, "Oh my gosh, look how young we look!" <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it was probably true. 25 years ago. And the uninteresting thing is that it says here that it was on the. T- we talked right after what was supposedly your farewell tour. Right. Right before Free Flying Soul. That's right. So. Uh, Obviously, you you suck at doing farewells uh, right. because you're still here. We gave it a we gave it a little bit of a try though because I mean, <laughs> we we did in we did close the close the doors until like two thousand two thousand yeah it was two thousand mm-hmm. and I think we got back together because we were invited to play a festival in Albuquerque and uh, I think that kind of led led mm-hmm. to it's like hey we can keep doing this. So thinking back to the, the early days of youth choir when you guys first started making music what do you remember kind of what your original purpose or intent was did you have a, a plan in mind for what you wanted to do hmm. i don't know if we had a plan i don't think for as far as my my perspective on it i grew up playing music my whole life in church so for me it was just that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a band and then saw these other bands happening and just, you know, wanted to be in a band. And my dad wouldn't, you know, my parents, I was a preacher's kid, they're not going to let me go play in a bunch of bars at 15 or 16, you know. So it's just, it was just this natural progression of what, what I was doing in church. Yeah. Did you have a... A sense Not really. Purpose. I mean, it, it, in the beginning, it was kind of Derry's thing. You know, Tim Chandler, our bass player, we went to college together, and uh, he introduced me to Derry, and uh, we were just kind of backing up Derry at first, you know, and he had these, this connection with uh, Maranatha Music, and Derry was an engineer, uh, a live sound engineer, and also a, a studio engineer, and had relations with people like Daniel Amos, and so forth. So we just kind of got involved, you know, I was just kind of a drummer for Derry at first. And yeah, like Derry, I came out of a, a church scene and it was very natural to play those kind of venues and get become part of that scene. We became part of that scene of bands like Undercover and Altar Boys and The Lifters and Crumbacher and sort of that early 80s new wave sort of thing that was going on. We, we became part of it. It was very natural for us. But pretty quickly, we realized we didn't fit that. We didn't want to write those kind of songs. We didn't want to write just ministry songs. We didn't want to be a Christian band. And we figured that out. We started out as, as that. But I think we figured out pretty quickly within the second or third album that, that we just didn't, we wanted to write songs about what we wanted, whatever, whatever, you know. And, and we weren't fans of of Christian music per se, a few groups maybe, but and when you say that, just just to kind of frame it for people that might not even know really what you mean, you were Christians and you were in a band, but you're saying you didn't want to be in a Christian band. What was the culture like, and how was that evolving into something that you were saying? Wait a second, this isn't quite what we were signing up for. What 
what kind of baggage was happening that was changing the definition of what it meant to be in a Christian band proper? Well, the expectation was was tremendous that you would give an altar call and that, what are you? You're either one of two things. You're either evangelism or you're edification. You're like either edifying the body or you're getting people saved. You know, one right. of these two functions. And there was no like, well, we're just playing songs that, that we like, you know, that are about whatever's going on. So the and music we didn't was listen to that. Derry to... especially listened to so much music, introduced me particularly to all these music because he was like a collector, you know, always buying uh, the latest thing. And, and it was just bands, you know. It wasn't any Christian music thing. And so we, we realized pretty, you know, fairly soon that Derry wasn't really a guy, even though his dad's a preacher, he's not a preacher, mm -mm. And wasn't really good at it, you mm -hmm. know. The having that expectation of like giving an altar call or something, he didn't want to do it. and Wasn't good at it, you know. And and we didn't. And the songs eventually fairly, there were very few what you would call Christian songs very early on, but it shifted, you know. And then I became writing. Start. I was wanted to write lyrics, and um, I started doing that. And more and more, they were just about what was happening in our lives. And some of it might have had to do with faith, and a lot, of, a lot of it didn't have to do with it. And and so we evolved. We continued to evolve with our 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 uh, the kind of band we became. But we all we were dealing with the trappings of expectation. Your lyrics always reflected that way of seeing things spiritually. And you as a lyricist, you were finding new and poetic ways of, of examining things from this spiritual perspective. You still kind of stayed in the, in the Christian subculture, but you kind of found a tribe of people that were also similarly not interested in music that was kind of really just being used as propaganda for lack of a better term like that like what it sounds like is the the music was really secondary for a lot of those people it was really the, the message and what the music could accomplish in terms of the church's agenda that was their priority for you the music and the poetry was really the, the point and it seems like you found an audience that was interested in that too is that fair to say i uh, yeah i would think so and and even even in the early stages, I mean, we played clubs pretty much from the very beginning. We played churches, clubs, we play anywhere. You're just trying to find a place to play, you know, and whoever was booking you at the time, they're putting you in whatever, you know. So in, in L.A., we'd play clubs, and we'd then one night we'd play at church, and then we'd play a youth group basement or something, you know. It's right. just, you're just trying to play like any other band, you know. It's just that the... That, and the other thing is we were on Christian record labels. Right. We, we can't were. blame. I mean, I'm mad at sometimes at the situation, but we did it ourselves. We, we played the church venues. We played at Christian Night at Knott's Berry Farm. We played Cornerstone. What's Cornerstone? Jesus Christ, the rock of, you know. <laughs> the, 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 uh, we were doing that, and we were on Word Records, and they are like trying to get us on the radio. And it's really weird to try to create music that, when you can't even stand the music yourself. I couldn't stand to listen to Christian radio, but yet I'm trying to, I'm under pressure to write a lyric that can be played on that station uh, for the first several records. 
And it was probably our sixth record, Circle Slide, which is the last one we did on Word, where we finally just, look, this is going to be our last record. I thought for sure that was our last record. Let's just make the record we want to hear. And we know they can't sell it, you know, and we're not going to worry about radio or anything like that. And they never could sell us, you know, <laughs> we couldn't be sold. But but you're right, our, our music did find an audience somehow, not a huge audience, but it resonated with some people, and they've stayed with us for decades. So it depends on how you look at it. You know, we, you could look, sometimes I think we're absolute, complete failure. How, how could you be a band for 35 years and have so little success? Well, why would you keep doing it, you know? But on the other hand, it's like, wow, it, it, look at these people that have carried our songs in their hearts for decades and are still lit, loyal and with us, so it just depends how, how you look at it. <laughs> Think about it. How many of the bands that were cranking out really effective church ministry music right down that lane in 1984, 85, 86 are still connecting with those crowds today? None. I don't think any of them are around, right? right? Not really. I mean, no. you got some of the more adult contemporary ones around, like Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. Uh, but as far as but the, they're not even doing that kind of music yeah, anymore. Right. They've grown and evolved. And, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we're the last band standing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would say that that's going to make part of what this story is, is really interesting, is that by finding your own path, digging into different dirt, you found a, a tribe of people that were also digging in the same direction so now looking back over 35 years the fact that you're still making not only just making music but making really good music i, I don't know i i think i'd feel pretty good about that if i were you <laughs> i hope you can well one thing i think one thing that we're that we are really proud of is that we feel like we've done our best you know just to kind of to tell the truth about who we are and about what's going on in our lives and that that is one place that steve has really excelled because he can he can go there where I'm pretty close and I can't go there. And so he can speak for me in a way that I can't speak for myself, which makes it easy to sing the lyric. Hmm. Um, so but but I think that we're I think that one thing that we're proud of is that we've been consistent over the years. Yeah. I think that with our records I don't look at any of them and just cringe and go, gosh, I never want to hear that again. I think we've been pretty consistent. I think we've grown. I think, it, you know, and, and I'm really proud of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty proud of our body of work too, and, and I'm not really ashamed of uh, of much. Um, I think that when you make the music that you want to hear, make the record that you you want to hear. You know, I say that to people: make paint the painting you want to see, you make the food you want to eat, and share it. You know, that's what art should be. Not trying to meet anyone's expectations. 
and consistently I think we've made music that we liked ourselves and I've said the things that I feel are true and honest and not trying to it doesn't do anybody any good for me to act like I have something together or have some insight or some uh, uh, better than you or some way I think you want to hear music that you can relate to and, and um, we've had a lot of drama in our lives We've had a lot of trouble. We've made a lot of mistakes. And we have a lot of regrets. And, and um, some great things have happened too, but it's all in the music. And I think people relate to it because most people are that way. Count the butts and bottles in the morning when we're gone. Fools agree reality is more than we should get. How do Dan, when did you get involved with these guys, and uh, what do you remember about um, the earliest times that you started adding what you do into the mix? I think I came in right after when we were known as Youth Choir, when the Voices and Shadows record just came out. I think you guys were like maybe mixing it, or it had just been done when Derry kind of put out the word that he was looking for a sax player to add to the band so just shortly after that record so i've been playing with them since uh the shades of gray ep on at that point and to me i i i thought it was amazing to find this band because you know i i liked moody music i liked you know melancholy music um you know at the time groups like psychedelic furs you know were uh, you know, the Smiths, and, you know, groups like that and stuff. And, you know, as a saxophone player, you don't really find an opportunity to be in those kind of bands, usually in a top 40 band or a funk band or something like that. Uh, so I felt really, really lucky that I got to play in a band that I would want to listen to their music. When I first got in, I mean, I didn't have any big agenda either. Like, I, you know, I, you know, grew up as under a single mother, and uh, you know, no opportunity for college or anything. So I was like, I guess I'm going to be a saxophone player in a band. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting jump. Good, good, yeah. good play, Strange yeah. algebra equation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just like, well, I didn't get educated, go into management, or you know, open a business or anything like that. So I, I was naive enough to think that I was going to be able to make a living playing saxophone in a, in a in an alternative rock band. Right. And, uh, so I, clearly management and business was probably uh, something you're going to have to learn later. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that that came on down the line later like in the mid 90s, but uh, yeah, no, that was it was it was a good feeling to to join the group and play shows and I was amazed that 
I think one of my first gigs was playing at Knott's Berry Farm mm-hmm. uh, in Southern California. It was like hundreds, if not a few thousand people in the audience at that time. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Those yeah. were really popular. Uh, I want to interject that, that it's really interesting when you're in a band with guys over so many decades. And just with close friends, too, the, the, the way their lives, the trajectory of people's lives. And some of us, just we kind of are how we are, and there's no really surprise. But I'd say of all the people I've known, Dan uh, has like evolved more than about anyone I can think of. And just, so, and just from the time that we met Dan... Because Dan, you know, I was awkward. Yeah, you know, he was fragile. He was a fragile yeah. person. He's been through some some rough stuff growing up, and or whatever personal, not the most confident guy or whatever. And and uh, but just to see Dan evolve over the years and become uh, a man of like just so uh, respected yeah. in this town, so admired, so accomplished, and um, it's been a great thing to mm-hmm. see to yeah. to to see Dan's. Growth and evolution. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. In the last interview when we talked 25 years ago, it's interesting you said something very similar, and, and, and that was about you coming out of your shell a little bit more. But you also told the story about how um, some you had put a sign about playing sax and you were about to go play for the Maranatha Orchestra oh, was and fun. some friend of yours was like nope and took that and gave it to Derry it was like you belong over here yeah we got it Bobby Salcedo a friend of ours got his name off the bulletin board at Maranatha Music it was like a band you know people would put up ad, they'd put up cards and yeah. things hey looking for a band I play sax And then you played with Adam again as well. Like that was you were a, a pretty yeah, critical ingredient yeah. in that group. Yeah, I was real fortunate to be asked to play um, with Adam again as well. You know, I always considered the choir my band right. and all, but uh, Adam again was a fun thing to be able to to do. And I feel you know real proud of the work that I did on those records, and you know glad that I was able to have a relationship with uh, Gene. choir's always been the band. That was an interesting time because that the the bands that were had this faith, this Christian impetus going on, but were were looking actively striving to find a different way of integrating that into their art that was less about propaganda and more about art. Uh, Adam again was a big part of that. The choir was a part of that. Daniel Amos was a part of that. 77s those groups all in that kind of soup of the in the 80s um and you guys were were 
one of the central elements of that kind of thing all the way back then. And you're still doing this. And now, Dan, you have, when we talked 25 years ago, you were just starting to get involved with working in the industry. And that has actually proven to be something that you've done really well at. Um, between then and now, you've worked at a couple of different labels, but you've had a long stint. And now tell me a little bit about, uh, from a label perspective and what you know about the industry, looking back at the choir, what have you been able to bring into this that you've learned? Uh, what kind of expertise have you been able to bring in that has kind of helped sustain this, keep the candle burning uh, for the choir? I think it's empathy and loyalty yeah. um, that I have for the bands that I work with because we were never successful as how you know some people might define success. And so I always at a label wanted to do for the bands what I felt maybe our record label wasn't doing for us. Um, and so I kind of look under every stone and every nook and cranny to figure out what I can do to make a band successful. And whether that's, you know, currently I'm working uh, with groups like Mercy Me, uh, Phil Wickham, um, and, you know, Skillet and groups like that. Uh, even though they've seen a lot of success, even today I had some downtime. It was kind of a slow day. And I just sit there and think, what can I do for this band today? You know, what can I do for them? Is there something I can do to further their music? On there, so you know, when we were on a record label, we had several different marketing directors. You know, some somebody new would come in, and somebody uh, that we that got to know us would would move out. And so I feel that I've been a, like a consistent uh, source of uh, energy for the groups I've been able to work for. Yeah, you guys feel like having Dan as that sort of resource in the band has been part of what's kept the choir afloat well, dan has definitely kept us going as far as like after uh free flying soul he's the one that would say hey what about going in and doing a record you know he's the one that kind of kept us right and got our website got going our website and keeps all that keeps it going dan's role has been very interesting for all these years um you know the saxon lyricon thing in the 80s that was just so going on the sax and in uh and then but as far as like there's been different seasons where, like, how are we, how we going to put sax on a song? In the 90s, you know, it wasn't so... Without it being ska. <laughs> right. It was like it was kind of grungy stuff, and it was, like, harder to incorporate it. Um, so some albums, there's hardly any, and then others, there's more. And, and finding that role... Very interesting, like, on our, our, our newest album, I think uh, Deep Cuts, Dan probably played more sax and Lyricon than any other album, I'm pretty sure. And... Um, just over the years, but um, Dan's involvement as far as behind the scenes and just doing all the stuff that he does, um, again, that wouldn't have been predicted from the start, you know, the way it has turned out in Dan's role. And and, and also his wife, Lisa, mm -hmm. yeah. um, is our handler. We call, she They have dogs and stuff, so there's the play on words there. <laughs> but she's like our handler, too, you know. Because uh, you can't be managed. <laughs> you just have to be handled. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Yeah, right. Basically, that's, that's, it's the perfect verb yeah, for yeah. what she does. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's just we're like a family, you know. We'll have more with Derry, Steve, and Dan right after this.
you need to be on our email list because it is the best way to make sure you hear about new episodes of this show and new articles posted on the site first. But you also need to be on the email list because that is the only way you can be eligible to win stuff from us. We occasionally do big giveaways, like our current prize pack that includes a ticket to the Audio Feed Festival in Champaign, Illinois this Labor Day weekend, a super rare DVD copy of the Cornerstone Festival 20 years and counting film from my personal collection, and a bunch of cool swag from us and from the Electric Jesus film. We are also getting ready to give away an amazing Jimmy A. Beg print, so make sure you subscribe and like and follow our Facebook page at True Tunes Now and our Instagram page at True Tunes Music to keep up with the conversation between episodes and to make sure you don't miss out on anything. And speaking of Electric Jesus and audio feed, you are going to want to make plans to be in Champaign, Illinois this Labor Day weekend for the live debut of Three Sick Teens, a fun version of the band from Electric Jesus, including singers Wyatt Lenhart, Sarah Hutchinson, and other actors from the film and more when they open for the Danielson family. I'll be on hand and we'll be doing True Tunes podcast events and conversations, and I'll also be performing a set with my band, The Wayside. So make your plans now and come join us in person for this amazing amazing experience that will include a full screening of the film. All information is available at audiofeedfestival.com. All right, back to the conversation in the studio with the choir. We are kindred spirits, everyone, dancing This evolution of Derry predominantly writing the music and the creating the soundtrack and you writing the lyrics, um, when did that evolve? Like, how, how long into your work together did that formula sort of fall into place? You said that you didn't start that way. You started off kind of backing up Derry, but then you, you wanted to become a lyricist. So was it around Chase the Kangaroo or something that that role was really kind of crystallizing with? It was right after uh, no, it was right after Voices and Shadows, from, from what I remember. Yeah, I t- right Shades away. Shades of Grey, you wrote all the lyrics on that. Yeah. Was Shades of Grey before Diamonds and Rain? I forget. The EP. It was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the EP. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was a... I wanted to be a lyricist. I was an English major and a poet, little, you know, a little poetry kid, you know, and I just was very assertive, I guess, in that way, uh, right from the beginning. And so, on the EP, um, I just jumped in, and um, Derry just kind of allowed for it, and and we got really good response. Mm-hmm. And I think we just realized, uh, I mean, Derry was gracious to kind of let me do that. I often wonder, I mean, in bands and stuff, it's kind of like a marriage in that you can have this codependency. And it does, I think I wonder what what would have developed. Uh, For example, I can't work anything technical. I can't even find the light switch. I don't have any aptitude because Derry was an engineer from the very start. So that was covered, right? So I didn't have to twist any knobs or flip any levers, you know. So I, to this day, did not develop any engineering skill, even as a producer and all that, I just didn't, uh, I think that was because of my reliance on Derry. And I think in the same way with lyrics, 
Derry probably, if it wasn't for me, would have evolved in that way because, like he wrote uh, this song called Mercy Lives Here, which is one of the best lyrics in our entire catalog. Absolutely stunning. A girl in the corner is crying A silver-haired lady's alone And the queen of the boulevard's trying to hustle somebody home The smoking man shakes while the broken girl aches And the clown starts to sing his song He sings, mercy lives here Oh, mercy lives here The saints and the sinners, mercy lives here. And I just made me think, well, what if, what if Derry would have, you know, have done that, you know? So I think there, there is some of that with all of us in, in bands and in, in relationships. But yeah, I just sort of took it over early on, and I, I loved, loved to do that. That's kind of my gift. So how does it actually function? Do you come up with tracks from whole cloth and send them to Steve and Steve writes them? Do you sit together? Yeah, and it's usually some, what, what mostly happens is it's usually some chord, I'll strum some chord progression or something like that. And then Steve will hear it and go, oh, I like that. I can do something with that. Or I got an idea for that. You know, like a, a lot of times I'll be screwing around with something and Steve will be over here and then he'll, he'll go, you know, I got, I, think I got a lyric for that I think I got a lyric I'm, I could put together for that or something so, it, so it's more collaborative then, in real time yeah. yeah and then and then now now on the last few records too Steve has just come in with a thing and I'm, I might try and I might change a little something on it or whatever but he'll come in with a chord progression and stuff and I, what do you think about this lyric with this thing and so it's you know it's always it's it's kind of changed but there's a lot of similarities mm-hmm Honestly, English was not my greatest subject. In fact, my when I was a senior, my uh, I almost didn't graduate because my English teacher said I was possessed by the devil. <laughs> so um, wow. she gave me an incomplete. I guess the devil possession gets you an incomplete. <laughs> so not I had to quite take, enough. Yeah, so I had to. She go doesn't take want this, vengeance coming. Yeah, I had to take a test. I had to go in and take this test. It's, for me to graduate just because you had red hair yeah when she was a missionary oh she came gosh. from was it a christian school yeah bad small, religion right from the start small Jeez christian Lord. school man so anyway i i was more than happy you know because i love good lyrics and i don't want to re- i don't want to read something i wrote and go god that's crap you know why mm-hmm. did i why did that go on the record you know and he'll sit and belabor lyrics for days you know, hours and days. And I could do that with guitars for hours and days. Right. So. At what point does Dan's involvement get added into that and the decision-making about, is this a sax thing? Is it a Lyricon thing? Is it a keyboard thing? Like, what? when does that... Usually, it kind of early on, we're always listening for places for Dan to play. So once we start, that usually comes once we start producing the song. And we'll be thinking, okay, well, let's, we need to leave a spot here because that'll sound cool as a sax or... Get lyric. Oh, he, I can hear the lyric on going, doo, 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 you know, or whatever. And then we bring Dan in. You know, a lot of it's because he's just his work schedule. He only has a finite amount of time. Mm-hmm. So then we'll bring him in towards the end. It tends to be sort of the last t- 
touch, the last strokes of paint. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this album was great because because we're in the studio, we're the studio is in Dan's house, so he's sort of more like a captive. You know, he comes home and like, <laughs> oh, you got to play now, you know, because you're here. You can't. Uh, whereas before it was challenging to get Dan on because we're in the day doing the record and he's at work at a day job. Right. So that's been much much better in that way. What's it like for you then? Like when you come in and you hear these songs, are you hearing them when they're in demo form and you're kind of in your mind already, the juices are flowing before you get, just kind of walk me through how it is for you creatively. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of changes uh, with with, uh, with every record, every song. I can remember uh, um, getting a demo of the song What You Think I Am um, on our Shadow Weaver, Weaver record. And I just remember being in my... My, my little music room and just trying to come up with a line for it just like practicing really hard and I'm really proud of that part you know, uh-huh. that I did on it and but I worked it out in, in demo form before you know coming to the studio and tr- saying hey let me try this out uh, but a lot of times I just kind of come in blind you know um, I've done it from practicing in my room in demo form to just coming in blind Wow. Um, man, yeah, that What You Think I Am song, that having that riff, that main mm-hmm. hook be the sax drum, yeah, that was just it's a great bad one. to the bone. That was great so bit. good. It's yeah. like makes you want to own a Camaro just so you could drive down the street and play that <laughs> so loud outside the window of a Camaro. Uh, That's yeah. Camaro rock if ever I heard it. I'm nobody's angel, that ain't me. What kind of devil do you think I'd be? I'm a good Samaritan and a very, very bad We'll have more with Derry, Steve, and Dan right after this. I want to thank our new Patreon supporters for helping us make this show possible. Our patrons get early access to higher quality audio files of each episode that they can then download. We also do some Zoom meetups and more, and we'll soon have some Patreon-only swag available. If you'd like to support this show by joining our Patreon circle, you can find the link on the show notes page or just go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. Oh, and if you're a patron and you're planning to be at Audio Feed this September, please let me know. All right, back to the conversation in the studio with the choir. You're a wolf in the wild. I want to hear you howl. I'm a Saskatoon lynx on the prowl. I believe we're compatible. I'm reading all your signs. Please don't blame it on the wine. My eyes are on fire, baby, for you. Let's talk about this new album, Deep Cuts. It's kind of funny when when I first saw that it was going to be called Deep Cuts, I'm lazily thinking, oh, from a record company thing, this must be like revisiting 
obscure album songs mm-hmm. that weren't singles, you know, like that kind of deep well, cuts. Well, let, me, let yeah. me explain how that happened. We were we were set <laughs> to go on tour. Mike was going to, Roe was going to play with us. Mm-hmm. And we decided, because um, we tour pretty much every fall and every spring, and we do, like all bands, the favorites, the favorites. And we thought, man, let's go out and do, let's choose some songs that we don't normally do. Let's really dig in deep and do a tour called Deep Cuts. So it was that idea. Yes, it was. That was going to be the tour title. So then, so that was the tour title. And then I got thinking, and the lyric idea took on a different meaning for me, like a song called Deep Cuts that's Mm -hmm. about our our wounds, our childhood wounds, and the things that we we live, you know, we'll never overcome. They're a part of us, you know. um, And that turned into a song, and I just thought, well, what if we go on this tour and we get the out? We call the album Deep Cuts too, but it'll have a different meaning. So we'll have we on the Deep Cuts tour, but we'll also have a album called Deep Cuts. So it was like a double That's hook. That's new. That's new song. Yeah, a double right. hook was the idea. Well, then you know the whole COVID thing happened. No touring. We never got to go do that tour. Yeah. But we still we have an album called Deep Cuts, <laughs> and it's right. all new material. But the song Deep Cuts has a different meaning. Yeah. Well. And the whole album seems to consistently somewhat fall under that theme. Like, is that, did you write the songs after kind of coming up with that concept? Do all these songs fit under sort of the theme of Deep Cuts? Brokenness? Did you already know that you wanted to do an album about that? Or did you just write songs and then later recognize that they were all seeming to kind of follow along those lines? I think most all of our songs and all of our records are about that. <laughs> As I asked that question, I could hear that answer already yeah, coming. Right, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't think. I just that song was just its own thing, yeah. um, and so I can't say that that was a conceptual. But that would be a theme of all our music. You also go back and you reference so many of your old songs, little lines here and there that longtime fans will just get a lot of delight of going, oh, that's from this song, that's from, I know that. But not in a way that would sound weird if somebody's never heard you before. Free Flying Soul or different lines that pop up will sound, they're always in service of the current song. I've not heard you do that as much in the past as you did on this record. Was that something that, again, you were thinking ahead of time because of thinking about deep cuts, you were going to refer to the songs from the past, or was it just something that just kind of happened? It just kind of happened. Wow. You know, we've done it from time to time, and I know our, our, our listeners have enjoyed that. Yeah. The long-term fans get their reward for, I remember that, you know. Yeah. So giving them the little payoff for paying attention. <laughs> uh, so, and I, and I enjoy it. I mean, you can steal from yourself, you know. You so, can steal from anybody. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's but, true. But it is nice. It's self-referential in that way, and it, and it does create some resonance with previous projects or breadcrumbs you know yeah it's it's fun to do that you're an integrated girl rain fire and clouds we might find the silver pearl with your treasure map right now you've got nothing i need the album opens with that song hurricane which i love the i love the um dichotomy or the the juxtaposition of the imagery of a hurricane and yet the musical setting being just so beautiful and pretty. Uh, so tell me about kind of how you come up with that and then you start the album with that song. It's not typically the kind of song I would think of to start an album with. So. 
I don't know. No, it was written before uh, the whole COVID thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of like that premonition, you know, of, um, and there was before the hurricane season that actually happened. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it was, it was really thinking about the political climate, the mm-hmm. time we were coming up to the election. It was, times were so tense. And um, I don't remember. If the, I think Derry just sent me the demo, like a little demo Mm-hmm. Of, uh, he had just the acoustic guard it was just the acoustic and some kind of a rhythm pattern he had and um I don't know why things come when they when when they come the song is really a is about um, interpersonal relationships and that's what I think about the whole political argument and all that that's going on Facebook wars and all that is so stressful. Really, these are what's going to come of it. There's not much we can do about it. I mean, these things we don't have control, but we do have control to some degree of our relationships, and that's the thing what we we can maybe improve or find find shelter in the eye of a hurricane. That's who, that's with the people that you're close to. Hard rain, howling wind, howling wind, and hard rain. Find shelter in the album is sort of organized in fours we knew we had three sides we were going to do we're thinking about vinyl right, right. and we're going to do four 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 and four um if you, so you think about the, the final flipping so the first three songs are very broad very talking about this the, the, the situation the, the you know even the second one in the woods i want to walk in the woods yeah. with a friend right. is about the isolation and kindred spirits you know there, it was all very collective feeling about the times um, and that one is interesting because it kind of flips the dynamic where the first one the lyric is really intense but the music is really peaceful the second one the lyric is really peaceful i want to go for a walk in the woods with the friends and the music is some of the most badass rock that you guys have done in a long time <laughs> like it is just blistering i want to walk in the woods with a friend i want Talk about everything and nothing And travel down the trepidatious Path of ponderance It's a wondrous day At the end of um, 
of feel you close. You hear the little chatter, the, the, the girl. The, yeah. And um, that was Erica Estes, um, a daughter of a really good friend of ours, um, Paul Estes, who's been like a fan and supporter from Virginia for so long. And um, his 20-year-old daughter passed away. Mm. Suddenly, unexpectedly, had some heart condition happen out of the blue. Can you imagine? You know, you're, we're parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we were friends enough that we talked quite a bit about it. And, and then he, he sent me a little tape recording of a little clip he had, a little you know, iPhone recording of a clip he had of her. I was so happy that we found that sweet place for it on the album at the very end of, of Feel You Close. Mm-hmm. And the lyric even sort of resonated in that way. I smile when I feel you close. Um, even though he'd lost her, wow. um, so yeah, there's there's special things on the record. I smile when I feel close to me. I smile when I feel in my heart. I smile when I feel you close to me, even though we're so. In that, that group of four, that second group of four, is the song Aces of Our Eights. And originally, I had written a, a lyric called Undaunted Love, which was about my daughter Erin and, and just thanking my, my, the daughter love thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the music was so sentimental. It was a very, very major key melody, you know, very major key pop, you know, sounding thing. And that's why I felt so sentimental. But in the end, they were like, the guys are like, this is just, it felt kind of sappy. You know, mm. it just felt light. It just felt, haven't we done this? Now? You know, but I liked the track too much. Um, we'd already tracked it. Drums, mm-hmm. bass, guitars, basically. I was like, really? Let me go back. And I, it's so hard to re, re-approach a lyric, right? Once you've done it, it's usually like, okay, if you don't like it, forget it. Get rid of that song. But I just was like, no, it's too good of a drum track, you know, <laughs> give it up, you know. So I came back and I tried to make it really rough, like about death and, you know, ah, you know, we're all, we all could have died this year and, and blah, blah, blah. And I tried my best to rough it up, the lyric. And then I put in the line, you know, the, uh, we lost one brother in the band. It rhymed. And all of a sudden the song started becoming about Tim and the loss of, yeah. it evolved into that. Then the narrative that I put in there, it evolved into a different song, 
and then I think we fuzzified it a lot sonically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fuzzified. Dan played the the synth thing on the lyric. You know, we tried to get extreme sounds. Right. So with the extreme lyric, tension in the lyric and tension in the sonics, we 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 roughed it up enough that we could get away with a super melodic, mm-hmm. a major key thing. And that, to me, is one of the examples of a song where it's like, oh my goodness, they, they really took us on a complicated journey because it's a complicated thing. How is that even possible? It's just, well, well, there's so much warmth in it, too, with every sunset is grace, every sunrise redemptive. It's got so much tension in that one song. Right, yeah. But then the next four songs are all about the just personal, wow, I've really effed up bad, you know? <laughs> it's right. like, right? It was like tragedy. Like, this is because we've been through a lot. Just the struggle. And so I think there's humor in it. Reckless Ways has, to me is really funny. I think it's a hilarious song. But just about the, the struggles that we've had, very honest, very real, very human. Even with the song Reckless Ways, and it's like my former Reckless Ways. Like it's like, well, it only happened yesterday, but now <laughs> now they're my former Reckless Ways. And then the song Trouble follows it. If you're looking right. for trouble, just a high contrast of that. You think that I'm saying we're fixed? You know, we're not fixed. Right. Well, yeah. Trouble is fun because it's got that film noir feel to the track, and the lyric is totally like a vampire story. I love those two being together, and it's interesting also that you put them in the order that you did, because common sense would probably have them in a flipped, like exactly, you know. <laughs> but you gotta do it exactly. This way. You know? Again, complicated answers to complicated questions, if there's even answers there. Right. Yeah. 
And then the third side kind of switches to the romantic songs, you know. It kind right. of goes out nice and yeah. warms it up. It all kind of warms up at the end. <laughs> there were some people talking on our in the choir club about, isn't that kind of creepy? These guys, this this old writing these kind of romantic sexual songs or whatever. And man, I just just heard uh, Leonard Cohen, you know, he, he wrote the, mo the most sexually romantic songs, you know, right up to his last album before he died, you mm -hmm. know, so we're not dead. You know? <laughs> so, but, uh, but you're saying that, that um, Deep Cuts kind of stands on its own, like you don't feel like that's in the romantic Set. No, right. no. D Deep Cuts is its own song. Yeah. I think that's kind of for everybody. Right. Some songs are really specific to certain person, or and some songs are broad. Right. Most of the time, our songs are very specific to someone, but Deep Cuts is pretty much for everybody. Yeah. That image that you use on the album cover, the uh, um, Kintsugi art, you know the plates china that's been broken and then put back together and instead of hiding the fractures they use gold and they they ex use it and it makes it even more valuable because it's a master that put that back together again um did that idea or did you come up with that idea um after the song was done was that kind of woven into the idea of the song or or how do those things play with each other um, that came after the song Deep Cuts, but before the song The Woods. Interesting. Because it's a reference to every bowl, gold filled, a bowl with gold-filled cracks becomes a treasure. That was after we decided to do the Kintsugi thing. This idea of, I love how that's, that starts with you are beautiful, that, that kind of sample. What is that from? Well, that's our, you know, with our Kickstarter, people... Um, uh, supported us in all kinds of different ways and one of those was like for a certain amount you get to count off a song oh. and the guy that did that was a really good friend Chris Hain mm -hmm. from Hollywood California and he chose to count he, he supported us quite a bit of money to get to do it <laughs> he did. and he was the only one that did it and like we've been friends with Chris for so long years and um, I gave him like two or three songs to choose from he really resonated with the song it's lovely. It's cool. One of the family, the yes. extended family. You are beautiful. Hit it. Are you troubled by your own 
searching for a friend to trust Does it feel like forever won't be time enough To heal your heart from the deepest cuts Child, you are loved You have always been loved May one divine kiss be enough To heal your heart from the deepest cuts This idea of the scars and accentuating or, or at least, you know, not hiding them, but leading with them in a way uh, why do you suppose we are so committed to covering up our brokenness i think it goes with the theme of uh that we've always had about being merciful to to one another darius always talks about it from the stage about we we, we want to extend mercy to other people because we want people to extend mercy to us mm-hmm. And I think that's that kind of goes along with that theme, you know, um, when the sun shines bright, illuminating your scars, you're even more wondrous in my eyes, you know, to see, because we want other people to, to, to see that in us. I want someone to see my goodness in spite of uh, the mistakes I've made. Mm-hmm. Why do you suppose Christian music has such a problem with this? Like there's such a tendency to celebrate the victory and the the wholeness and the, to put on the kind of masks and stuff and to really cover those cracks as best we can. What? It is a challenge, okay, as a lyricist, because what is for, especially early on, we sell joy, you know. Christian music is joy for sale, you know. And um, I don't feel joy. I mean, uh, you know, we had the song called Sad Face, wait, we're right out of the Ecclesiastes. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. But there is a lot of pressure, pressure to, to, or the, I guess in that industry, to sell joy. I gotta be honest. Like, I tend to want to project certain things. And even in terms of my own brokenness, I realize when I look back, sometimes it's, I, I've broken and that's why I hurt you. <laughs> you know? And so when I'm looking at somebody else, it's like, well, don't blame me uh, for that thing I did. It's because I had a difficult childhood and I've got wounds from that and that's why I just hurt you. Mm-hmm. And We like to hide. Yeah. And it, because if and this goes way farther than just Christian music or Christianity or whatever. It, it as a human being, we're for whatever reason we're conditioned to think that our scars are more deeply bad are are worse than everybody else's scars. So if they see our scars, they're going to go, "Oh my God!" Right. You know, because even when people even when people decide to share about themselves, it's always they're always sharing, well, I've got all these scars, but today I had this victory. Right. I had this thing that happened that, you know, it's never, man, I just feel like crap today, and I don't like anybody in this room, and I don't want to be, you know, it's like the whole thing. Right. 
we never, we never, it's always prefaced with, I got scars, but yet today, yeah. you know, and that's the only reason we share it mm-hmm. is because there was some kind of victory happening or something. Right. I think we, that's one thing we did on the record with the song, The Fool, which is, you know, how many lashes will it take to motivate the reprobate? I was talking to myself in the song. And it just doesn't have a solution. There's no fix. There's those times when we find ourselves in the bottom of a well. And you just think, how did I end up in the bottom of this well? My own doing or whatever. And how am I going to get out? There's no way I can get out of this bottom of this well. And that's what that song does. Yeah. I was thinking about how often I've thought about the scars or the broken places and thought about healing, you know, when God puts certain pieces back together. And then when I go out and say, look, I'm broken and healed, you can be healed too. That kind of transparency and honesty is, is grace. Like mm-hmm. that's, that is just invitational to other people to say, boy, I would love to be that. But we often can't get to that point of healing unless we're willing to admit that we're broken. What great penances required to rehabilitate the criminal? What suffering will inspire the education of a fool? How many lashes will it take to motivate the reprobate? Rolling in the cool mud like a happy-go-lucky mule. It's a far cry to as you think about now where you sit and this record is done and you're proceeding, um, you've just launched a new chapter with this Patreon thing. Tell me about that and how that's, maybe Dan, you can tell us about mm-hmm. how that will fit into the mix. Well, Derry had been bringing it up over the last year or so. And uh, I kind of was a little bit dismissive uh, of the idea, but I realized that we want to stay active, you know, and you, and it's hard to stay active with creative content if you're just doing a, like a record every two or three years. And with the studio here, I thought that it would be an opportunity for us to make a, a, a connection with a certain number of our fan base that would allow us to be consistent with uh, um, coming up with material, you know, throughout the year. And then we can repurpose those songs later on. And so how will that functionally work? Like what what does it look like? People become members and they give a certain amount every month. And then what are the kinds of things that you'll be doing with that circle? Right. So on Patreon, there's like several different tiers that people can contribute. Anywhere from $3 to $75. And uh, on the kind of the middle tiers... Um, and higher tiers and stuff, we uh, we promise people that we'll do one song a month, a brand new song uh, every month uh, for them. In addition, just behind the scene content, you know, we've uh, we've posted stuff on Facebook and we've um, you know when when we can and stuff. But we have such a rich catalog of songs that we can talk about uh, that. Fans still, I'm still amazed how fans will go onto uh, our Facebook page, you know, and ask questions about a lyric from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a hunger to kind of get some more insight with the band. And I figured 
uh, we can do that with a Patreon. That's Another great. thing is that they can see us in process mm-hmm. a little bit. We're not we're not committing to have album quality songs. Like the, every month, we're going to at least give them at least one song that's from scratch. Um, but we're not going to necessarily, you know, we're not going to hire other players. I'm not going to. Ha- Dairy's going to, you know, we'll do the low end ourselves. I might use a drum machine instead of drums. Um, so they're going to, and then we'll maybe I'll recite the lyric in advance and. You know, so they get to see a little behind the scenes. But you'll still do albums on we're top still of this. Do albums. Yeah. We're, we're not going to stop doing albums and Kickstarters and things like that. We're, this is just this is another just another thing that we can do to keep busy and to give uh, you know our fans some other things that they want. We're going to do videos in here. We're going to do you know maybe have, maybe even have some special guests come by and do you know, a song with them and videotape it. And um, so that we, you know, we're just trying to trying to keep going, trying to expand it. And, and also on the Patreon thing, I have my own secret dairy tier that um, these guys don't really know how to access it, but it... So you're going to make a lot more money than Yeah, the money, that money just goes straight to me, and I don't really have to do anything. Oh, cool. Well, so, that's okay. No, it's like the In-N-Out Burger time. secret menu. You just yeah, got to know right. about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. right. He just has a webcam posted on him while he watches uh, uh, views and, and soccer yeah. during the day when he should be mixing. Right, yeah, that's what I do. Right. Uh, it shows that it, it, it's basically a whole thing about how to destroy your career Yeah. Right. over, over just, the last 35 years. And we'll, have, we'll do some fun things, too, unrelated to music. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was out there showing, showing, doing a tutorial on how to rescreen a window, you know. Uh, stuff like that, you know. You, I, I think we're gonna people. We can be creative and uh, surprise people. And plenty of entertainment value for your buck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people think of us as all serious and stuff, but we're we're not. Well, these guys are. I'm not. At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious street, on that beautiful, scandalous night, you and me were atoned by his blood. Thank you guys. As I pull out my soapbox here, I'm drawn back to this idea of the band's name, the idea of the choir, and what that has come to mean. I've often leaned on the old cliche when lamenting the way people of faith become irrelevant to the watching world or don't even try to engage their neighbors in lieu of the comfort and convenience of a consistent audience at home. We call it preaching to the choir, and in fact, we use that as the title of our 1996 cover story with these guys. But as I think about it, the choir is often as much in need of a good sermon as the rest of us. And who is the choir anyway? What I love about the moniker this band chose, especially in light of the journey they have experienced, is that their name now seems expansive enough to include all of us. 
We can all be in that choir, singing along if we want to be. Choirs are communal. I loved singing in a choir. It was an amazing thing to feel my voice vibrating in my own chest and throat, but to hear it disappear into a wall of sound. I sang in choirs of one kind or another from a very young age. Not all of them were very good, but a few were exceptional. I know what it's like to stand on risers with dozens of people, looking intently at our director, having worked hard to learn and understand a piece of music so that we could work as a unit to bring a song to life. At the time, as a teen, I didn't yet appreciate the value of what the director was investing in me. Unfortunately, singing in choir was not nearly as exciting as singing in a rock band. It was also much more difficult. Later, though, as I grew up, I came to understand the deep blessing that Mr. Ross Heisey, the choir director at Glenbard East High School, was in my life. I often long for those simpler, though challenging days of musical community. But our pals in the choir keep pushing forward against all odds. They work as a fractured and imperfect unit, telling their own stories and capturing the grit, failure, grace, and glory in the process. Derry sings Steve's lyrics. Steve provides structure for Derry's reverberating guitar, and Dan lays his graceful musical clouds over the top, and we all sing along, often with tears in our eyes. There's no longer any wall between the artist and the fans, the stage and the floor. We're all in it together, even if there are tragically few of us left listening and singing along. There's plenty of room here in the choir room. It's funny, but some of the most reckless, troubled kids I knew were choir kids. I never understood why anyone would describe a goody-two-shoes as a choir boy. No, many of the kids I knew in the choir could have used a good sermon or two. And if that sermon was about grace, mercy, and humility, it may have been meant for me. What I love about being a member of this choir is that it reminds me that I was not built to live this life alone. We are meant for community. All of that stuff about stages and floors and celebrities and civilians is an illusion anyway. The only walls that exist are the ones we imagine or the ones we build with our own hands. Enough soloing, enough spectating. Put me in the choir already. Let me enter that wall of sound. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. Thank you, Derry, Steve, and Dan, not only for your time today, but for your many years of service. May the road rise to meet you, as the Irish blessing says, and may the rain fall softly on your fields, and may many people join your new Patreon program. Thank you, of course, to my brother Bruce A. Brown for turning the dials, cutting the metaphorical tape, and making the show sound so good. And to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song, you can find a complete list of all the music used on this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com, by the way, along with links to the choir's official website, some cool photos, and more. Don't forget about joining our email list, following our weekly Spotify playlist, and telling your friends about the show. 
The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you that it's a good, great world we're wandering through together. So listen to the singers on either side of you, find your note, and let it fly. What I'd wonder, girl, staring into the sky, I'm wondering why. It's a good, great world, but it turns around. Never mind the ground Look up high Stars above Please don't cry Father's love Hold on tight To his hand Dream tonight Understand what I'd wonder, girl, staring into the sky, wondering why. It's a good, great world, but it turns around, never mind the ground. Look up high, dancing bears. Don't cry, Daddy's breath. Hold on tight to my hand. Dream tonight, Wonderland. What I'd wonder, girl, staring into the sky. It's a good, great world, but it turns, you'll see, so hold on tight to me. So hold on tight to me